Good morning, everyone. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Beautiful outside. Got to be out on my deck this morning reading the word and seeing the sunshine and the wind blowing the trees. It's beautiful. It's a great privilege for me to be here in Forest Grove. This is my first time ever speaking here. Um, I'm the new conference minister. I've been at it for just a little over a year now. And I haven't got to every church yet, and I haven't been to your church, so this is my first official visit. Uh, I'd like to bring greetings. I see my cohort, Pat DeGrossoff, and his wife, Gina, there. Uh, We'd like to bring greetings from our Saskatchewan MB Conference and the 34 churches that we all represent uh, around this great province, uh, right to the four corners. You realize we're the only province that can say that, right, to the four corners of our province and that. It's great to to be a part of of this uh, whole fellowship. Um, we uh, want to say thank you to this church for what you've put into our whole conference and how you give to help this conference be, be all that God would have it be uh, for as far as discipleship and seeing church planting and, and missions go forward. We just want to bless you for that and say thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Janet Lobeck has joined our executive, national or provincial executive, and we're really glad to have her as a representative from your congregation. Uh, and uh, so that's where we're at. So Bruce phoned me, or Pastor Bruce phoned me a little while ago and said, we're starting this new series. How would you like to be first up? And I said, wow, that's a great privilege. Um, let me think about it for a second. Yes, I'll be here. And it's a great, great joy. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Now, before I go too far in this, I have to be careful of plagiarism here because I stole this, uh, I ruthlessly stole this from a guy by the name of Tim Keller. So if you've heard this message before on podcasts or something, uh, he does it better than me. You can go there and find out. But uh, I've made it my own. And, and, we, and, and Pastor Brad talked about this being from our hearts. And this is a passage that I wouldn't necessarily have chosen. In fact, I was debating between two passages. Uh, but this is the one that the Lord, I felt, put in my heart for this time. And he's been doing quite a work in my heart. It's kind of fresh off the, off the front burner in my, in my spiritual journey. And it's, it's had a deep impact in me. And I trust in the Lord that it'll have a deep impact uh, in your heart. Um, I hope you have Bibles. Uh, I know it'll be on behind me, uh, and that you can read as well. But I'd really like you to be able to have your Bible so you could, you could look at the Word as we go through it. But uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. I'd like to read it, if, if you would, with me. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Well, which ones the man required? Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Heavenly Father, 
I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your word would do your work in people's hearts today. We bind the kingdom of darkness from destroying and stealing and and trying to confuse. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you will create uh, the growth of the seeds that are planted by your spirit in each person's life. You know where each person is at today. And I pray that they would have open ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and a heart to respond in obedience. And if there's those here today that do not know you, or those here today that are walking away from their faith, I pray that you would tap them on the shoulder, that they would hear your voice and come to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This rich young man came to Jesus. Jesus had a number of people came to him in different ways, and Jesus answered them in lots of different ways. But this young man was interesting because he was rich in two ways. We call him the rich young man or the rich young ruler uh, in different translations. This story is actually told in Matthew, in Mark, and also in Luke. Now, it's not always good to compare the stories because there's a reason why each author wrote them the way he did, and including in the story and the teaching of them. So we're going to mostly stick to Matthew. We'll make one reference to, to, uh, to uh, Mark. Uh, as we go through. But this rich run was actually rich in two ways. First of all, he was rich morally. He said, all these things I've kept. He was a good man. He was a man that did right things. He probably was a guy you'd want to hang with. But he was also financially wealthy, as we see, because it says later, because he had great wealth. Now, moral excellence, saying, I do that, we can assume that this moral excellence is probably true. You've probably heard this passage preached many times in many ways. Oh, here comes another one about telling me my riches are no good. And that's not the point of this story I find at all. We can assume this man is actually sincerely looking for something in his life. He wasn't just declaring in front of everybody, look how good I am. I'm going to text with this teacher to make sure that everyone knows how good I am. No, this was something different. This is a guy actually seeking something that I think many of us are seeking as well. Unconsciously, these two actually go together, the the moral wealth and the financial wealth in his head, and probably in our heads too. And it goes something like this. If you do good, you will do well. And if you've done well, well, it's because you did good. And it so permeates our society, uh, the the, used to be Christianized North America, so permeates our society, even though we're not there anymore. Think back to 19, I think it was 60, was it two or three? The Sound of Music. You all like the sound of music? And there's a, there's a beautiful scene where this young gal falls in love with this widower, and they, 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 all, through all the different things, they finally get together near the end of the movie before they make their escape out of Austria into Switzerland. Before they make that escape, they're in the garden in the gazebo, and they're standing close to each other, and she starts to declare her love for, her, for him, and she sings this song, and the line goes like this, the, the chorus of the, of the line, the song you probably know well, you could probably sing it with me. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Hmm. Hmm. Must have done something good. In essence, I must have done something good to get a guy like you, rich, wonderful, kids beautiful, they all obey, they sing wonderfully. I must have done something good to get this. Job's friend said the same thing to Job in the the book of Job. Uh, but only in the opposite. They were saying to him, you must have done something bad to get all this bad stuff. And it's the whole thing that's, that's in people's heads. The, the, the exception of, of the expectation of moral excellence equals a prosperous life by God. And, and probably he was a very excellent man. 
willing to admit there's something that he lacks. That, that's, that takes boldness to say that. And he's saying, I don't have it all together. There's something I still lack. And yet Jesus speaks strongly to him and sends him packing. Hmm. He shows him he is totally outside of the kingdom of God. Totally outside. He's not even close. And the disciples underscore it by saying, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus is teaching us that Christianity is utterly and entirely different than anything the human mind can conceive or think. We can be in the same boat, love with an honest humility, and be sent packing. In verse 22, it says that he went away sad. Now I'm told that that a better word than sad, and some of your translations won't use the word sad there, I'm told that the better word actually is grieved. And the Amplified Version actually goes on and says, in much distress. He's saying, I've almost made it to the top. Can't quite make it. One last thing. Jesus is telling him that he is in a completely wrong road. Far from the kingdom. He's thinking he's close. Perhaps some here today feel like him. I've kind of got it all together. What do I still need? So why was he sent grieving? Well, let's look at four reasons if we could. The first reason is, well, he went away grieving because he actually talked to the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of, of made up in people's minds, but the real Jesus. And he was hearing the real message of Jesus. When talking to the real Jesus, you were always shocked, always disturbed. It is how we grow as Christians. You found that? When you actually find a truth in Scripture that you didn't see it before, it kind of hits you and kind of rocks your world a bit. It's actually how we all grow. It's how the disciples all grew. They thought this thing, Jesus did that, and went, wow, who are you? When we meet the real Jesus or the real message of the gospel, you always find two things that are shocking. The first one is that it demands and requires more than you thought. And secondly that it offers more than you thought or even dreamed of. It demands more of you and offers more of you. And it actually requires one of two responses. It requires them. One, you bow down in wonder and give yourself to him again, or you go away offended. You go away offended. But we usually think being going away offended is wrong. And I'm actually here to say that maybe it's not so bad. Maybe if you go away offended, there is hope. You can always go and think about it and be disturbed about it. You've seen the truth, and you might come back. But one thing that is impossible to do is to have met the real Jesus and be indifferent. So if you find this whole thing laughable or irrelevant or boring... They're just kind of dragged here by somebody. Or you find it a sweet, comforting thing that is nice to dip into occasionally. Or you're vaguely guilt-producing or vaguely anxiety-ridden. You haven't seen the real Jesus because you were in the grip of indifference. Whenever you meet the real Jesus, 
he disturbs you. Let's take a quick trip through the New Testament. He disturbed everyone. Good and bad alike. Second reason. Because Jesus smashed two of this guy's basic assumptions about works. Jesus just smashed his religious views. And interesting, his views are absolutely common today. He knew he was lacking something. He needed some spiritual experience, at least. He wasn't sure. What must I do? I know through my journey in, in walking with Christ, would be, I, I'd, I'd meet a new group of Christians, and they had some kind of experience that I didn't have. And I'd say, oh, man, if I could just have it like them, then I'd know for sure. And you get that, and, man, those doubts didn't go. Well, if I just had that, then I'd know for sure. And I think there's lots of Christians that down deep still play that game lots. Play that game lots. You see, he knew he was lacking something. He needed some spiritual experience at least. He wasn't sure. What must I do, he said. He didn't think he didn't have it. But that he wasn't sure. He thought he had it. And he was just going to confirm it with Jesus. And Jesus kind of blows him right up. The way he looked for peace was based on two assumptions. And they looked good. But Jesus utterly smashed those two assumptions. The first one was that Christianity is something you can add to your life. And the second is that Christianity is something that you can do. Now realize most of you will reject those things right off the bat. But take a moment and see if it applies to your heart a little bit too. The adding concept is to kind of furnish your life. It's kind of like, you know, you got a new living room and you want some furniture in there. You got the house, but you got to put some furniture in there to make it look right, to make it look good, to fill it out, to round out yourself. What do I still lack? Oh, must be that. And Jesus makes an outrageous request. He says, sell the whole house. Sell the whole house. You see, here's a quote from Keller. He says, it's not something you add. It is like an explosion that develops that destroys everything you have to make way for something new. It destroys everything. Starting completely afresh. Remember the guy Nicodemus in the Bible, in, in John, who comes to Jesus at night? And he says to Jesus, what, what, you know, what do I need? What, what must they do? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, before you go your mind down to all the theological big pieces that we've added to and written books about being born again... Just go back to the stark statement of someone asking you, what do I need? And he says, you must be born again. The actual response to that is what Nicodemus' response was. How do we get back in my mother's womb? This is stupid. This is impossible. It's a complete start over, not just a spiritual experience. You add. What do I still lack? He's crying out. You don't need one more step. You need a whole new life. He is not just an addition to give you more power, more ram. He has a whole new operating system. Kind of like going from PC to Mac. Ever done that? It is very frustrating. Or now that with the new Windows, going back, that's even more frustrating. It's a whole new system. The second assumption is what, is what good things should I do? Well, here Jesus is very blunt. He's saying, what good things should I do? And Jesus is saying, there's only one who's good, and that's God. Huh? Huh? And yet ask the man to do something that is utterly impossible. Getting to God is not about goodness. Nobody can be good enough. And yet no matter how much we know that, there's still this thing inside of us that wants to move there. 
Now, there's a logic to what Jesus is doing that if you don't look at the passage enough, you might miss. The logic is, well, okay, take all your wealth, sell, give to the poor, and follow me. Well, here he's being very brilliant, actually. And he says, okay, you obey all the Ten Commandments, do you? Well, let's take the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, body, mind. Have no other gods before me. That's the first one. You say you've obeyed since your youth. Now, go and sell all just because I say so. Sound familiar? Go take your son that I made the promise with and go kill him. Oh, unless you hate your father, mother, husband, wife, children. Now go and sell all just because I say so. Ooh, that can burden us. You see, if God is really first in our life, everything else is trivial. Nice, but not necessary. It's just a trinket. Wow. Do I have any other gods before him? Let me tell you a quick illustration of something that happened in my life that exposed this reality in my weakness. A number of years ago, our church was, was uh, when I was pastoring here in Saskatoon, our church was, was discerning and praying together and seeking God, and we felt like the Lord together told us that there was some things about our property that we needed to pray over and clean up. And so in that, we decided that the best way to do that was to call a congregational prayer meeting. We actually went outside the building, surrounded the whole property, and prayed around it. Prayed to the all corners and, and, and just prayed together and asked the Lord for, for his, his freedom on the land that was there. Well, before we actually went there, I was praying, and the Lord gave me um, a thought that we needed to actually get a stake and drive in a stake and say, this is it. This is, we've done this. This is for God, to stake the land, as it were. And as I was praying, I got this picture of a person in a congregation who had been doing some work for me, and he had this long kind of crowbar thing um, uh, that he was using, and it was, it was old, it was, it was, it, and it was about this long, and I saw this picture of that, and I had this sense in my heart that God wanted me to purchase that. And in the spirit of King David, who was told by God to go make a sacrifice, and as he went out to the, to the threshing floor of this man, I think it was Aruna with this guy's name, he went to this threshing floor, and he wanted to buy, he wanted to, to make the sacrifice there, because that's where the Lord showed him to do it. And this guy that was plowing his fields with his oxen and with his, with his plows said, hey, just have the land, have the, the oxen, have the thing, make your sacrifice. And David said to him, no, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which does not cost me. And so he bought the guy at fair market value and whatnot and bought it. And so in the same spirit, I went to this friend of mine and I said, hey, I feel like I'm supposed to ask you if I can purchase that spike that I want to use for a, for a stake to stake the land. And the man was a spiritual man. He didn't just accept my thing. Oh, okay, here you go. No, have it. No, he didn't do that. He said, let me pray about it. He went home and prayed about it. A couple days later, he came back to me and he said, well, this is what I feel the Lord speaking to me. Oh, like just, I'll give you a couple bucks for the thing. Like it's not worth much. And the guy says, that's what the Lord spoke to me. And he said, you can either buy it for 20 bucks or whatever's left over in your bank account at the end of the month once you finish paying your bills. Right away, God exposed my heart. 20 bucks was easy to get, get rid of. But to be honest and actually look at what was left over, I didn't want to. Expose what was really there. You see, the logic here is Nobody loves God with all their strength and mind and body and soul. The real problem is not that you need uh, a lot more goodness. It is that you won't admit that you know down deep that you're not good. Jesus said to him, 
No one is good except God. You see, you think it's something to add, really. No, it's a revolution. You think it's something to do. No, it's something you receive. It's not, it's not this horizontal thing where we put our nice and nasty stuff. You've heard this before. You see, when we, when we can kind of put our good stuff against our bad stuff a little bit, we kind of feel a little bit better about approaching God. And, oh, thank you, God, I can be in your presence now because I feel better about my sin or whatever I've done. I put my nice stuff ahead of my nasty stuff. But in reality, it's a vertical of dependence and receiving. And we have a hard time receiving once for all. He who knew no sin became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. We have a hard time there, a really hard time. The young man, relative to other people, is good. But it is his doctrine of goodness that's wrong. As a result, he goes away grieving. Jesus has smashed his assumptions that everybody else holds to as well. And the disciples underscore the truth of that statement because they say, well, if he can't be saved, who can be? Reason three. The reason three is that Jesus got personal. He got personal. He got actually to the heart of something in this guy's life. Even though Jesus has contradicted his views, it's not the real reason he's grieved. He believed his problem really was an academic one. I'm missing something, a rule or a doctrine or something. And many of us have the problem with Christianity, and you hear this, people say, well, how can, how can a God of love let suffering happen like that? Or how can a, God, a just God allow so much evil? Or, well, it, it, it leaves other religions out. How is that fair? Or, well, I feel really judged about my, my habits. You know, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. You hear that an awful lot. Matthew leaves out a detail that Mark puts in in Mark 10, 21. I think there's a slide for that one. Mark 10, 21. What do I still lack? Jesus looked at him and loved him and then said, sell everything. He looked at him and then loved him. You see, reaching into his soul, he says, I know this is going to hurt you. I see the real cancer that is killing you. I, killing you. I see the real issue. You've got to get rid of all that money. Now, to understand what Jesus is doing here, if you've got money, don't worry about it right now because we need to have some context. There's nowhere else in the Bible. There's no rule. There's anything. In fact, if anything, rich people got promoted in the, in the Bible. No one else has ever asked to do this in the Scriptures. In fact, even Zacchaeus, who comes to faith in Christ, only gives half of his wealth away. There's no rule here. This is a drastic measure to a drastic problem. It's like going to an alcoholic, confronting an alcoholic or a gambler or someone in deep in addictions. This is a drastic measure. What we thought was the problem really isn't. There's a power struggle here with God over your dreams. Over your dreams. We had this young gal in our life, and I have permission to tell you the story of her life uh, quickly. Um, we had this gal in our life that was a good friend of ours, and we noticed that she was dating this one fellow that wasn't very good for her. 
And this guy was, was taking her away from Christ, not towards Christ, and, and making her less social. And le- it, was just, it was just a mess, mess. And we all tried to be very careful, tried to respect her wishes, and, and tried to work with her in this thing. But this guy kept on pulling more things and more things. And eventually, he took off with her car, leaving her with about well, thousands of dollars worth of debt. And this was a girl that was like 18, 19 years of age. Thousands of dollars worth of debt. And took off to another province and, and was gone. And she was just devastated because she tried to give honestly. She was looking for love. And it moved her into another relationship. She got involved in modeling with this, with this other fellow. This guy was helping her with, with clothes and makeup and hair. And you should have seen her pictures on the internet that she put on there all the time. She was absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. And that, but our heart was going like, something's wrong. You're still going after this thing with somebody else. On top of it, um, this guy that she's going with now declares, well, tells her that, well, actually, I'm gay, but I still want to go with you. In fact, proposes to her marriage. Well, when I, when I interviewed the fella, nice fella, treated her well, so different than the other guy. It was like the opposite end of things and, and how he treated her. And this girl was just like confused like crazy and kind of said yes to the proposal. When I met with this young man and I said, what are you doing? And I found out that he needed to stay in Canada and be married in order to do that because he wasn't a Canadian citizen. I started putting two and two together, except the fact that he really liked her and he was a really good friend to her. It wasn't just to use her. It was also, it was also because it was a good friendship. But this was not of God, and this was not of the Lord. A number of us were praying for her and, and trying to help confront her and whatnot. And, and finally, she broke through in the Lord and realized she was running after dreams that she couldn't make happen. And so what she did was this beautiful, beautiful girl. She shaved her head, and everybody said, What are you doing? It's all radical. Because in her heart, she was doing this. She was selling off. And she ended up living with us for a couple of years. We watched the Lord just change her. And I asked her if I could share this testimony. She said, yes, if we can help someone. You see, when the life of power and joy is without God, it's missing. And what Jesus in love was saying to this person was that you aren't right. You aren't right. There's something not right. And it's killing me. And it's killing me. Anything I decide that will give me power and joy outside of God becomes a monster and it drives you and takes you out. We have to kill this thing before it kills you, Jesus is saying. Let me decide the money for you. Put me first. Be willing to walk away from it all. Be willing to be single. Be willing to have no children. Be willing to be poor. Be willing. We think the problem is just academic, superficial, behavioral. But there is a monster in the heart. And Jesus says, surrender your dreams to God. In Jeremiah, there's a verse that says, where God says to the children of Israel, he says, I have two things against you. One, you've rejected me, the wellspring of life, and have dug for yourself cisterns that cannot hold water. That cannot hold water. You see, money can be the monster, though that was his issue. That isn't really what's being talked about here. But having money or not having money can be the monster. Money or sex or work or a number of things can be that monster that starts to drive us. You lack one thing, Jesus said. And it's interesting, if I told you what you lack, I wonder if you'd pull it out of the scripture. He says the one thing you lack is treasure in heaven. I wouldn't pull it out of scripture. Until I started going through this, I didn't see that. But he says you lack one thing. You lack treasure in heaven. Oh, well, then we better start working harder so we can get you know, gold and silver and precious stones up in heaven that moth and rust don't get at. But when you go deeper in this and start to think along this, it's actually not about 
treasures. It's about real treasure. Did Jesus come to die on the cross in order so you could have piles of gold in heaven for later? Or did he die on the cross to bring you back into relationship that you were created for? You see, reason four is treasure in heaven. And there's two pieces of treasure that I never saw before in this passage that are just absolutely strong. The first one is, he is your treasure in heaven. You have me. You're rich in God, Jesus says. You have my forgiveness, my righteousness, my adoption. You have permanency. Security. You become good in me. The second treasure I never thought either was actual fact. He loves us so much that we actually are his treasure in heaven as well. You are my treasure in heaven. Jesus said to the disciples when they came back from ministry trip one time and they saw demons come out and they saw healings happen. They were so excited. They were just all oh, high-fiving each other. Wow, we saw demons come out. We saw this. It's kind of like a week of camp, right? Wow, is that exciting what God's doing? And Jesus said, don't rejoice in that stuff. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. But what's the picture of written in heaven? If you're like me, you rather be go to the book of Revelation and you look for the books that your name is scribbled in the book in the books of life. And that's true. But I don't think that was God's heart. I don't think that was Jesus' heart at all. Because there's this picture of the high priest that goes in before God, before the, in the tabernacle, before the, the altar, before the bema seat of Christ, of, of God, where he put the, the, the blood on for all the sin of the nation once a year at the Day of Atonement, walking up there, and he's all in his priestly garments, and, and, and right in the front of his priestly garments is this big, funny-looking thing with 12 stones in it with the engravement of everybody's name, the names of the families. Rejoice! Where's Jesus now? He's before the Father interceding for us in heaven. The treasure is, he's there with the breastplate with your name engraved on it. And if you don't believe me, look what he says in Isaiah 49. I think there's a slide for that one. Isaiah 49. But I will not forget you. A mother might forget you, but I will not forget you, he says. I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Now maybe you've seen the picture. You've seen a picture of a hand of God with his, with his little child just kind of engraved in a beautiful picture. But I'd like to go one more further. That maybe it's even like a tattooed name, like it's like it says in the high priest. And he's interceding before God. There's two things, according to the Bible, that are happening before the throne room of God. Accusation and intercession. 24-7 before the Lord God. And here he says, I've engraved in the palm of my hand. Now, it's popular to get tattoos. Lots of us don't like them yet, but others, you know, if I put hands up, you'd be surprised how many people here have tattoos someplace. It's popular. It's everyone's doing them. But you know what? You, most tattoos are put in places where you don't see them every day. If you put a pat, tattoo in the palm of your hand, how often do you see it? Constantly in front of you. Constantly. You see, if you make my son your treasure, that makes you my treasure. If you make my son your treasure, that makes you my treasure. Coming in for a landing worship team if you want to come. Is your identity... From this or from your bank account? Where's your identity from? You will only be free if you see that with me you are rich. One last illustration. 
In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3, there are seven little, little, little letters from Jesus to certain churches. Those churches were in the whole community. And there's two churches specifically where he deals with this subject. One is a church called Laodicea that many people in the church are familiar with because the message is so strong. And he says, because, I'm gonna, because you're so lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The other one isn't as well known. It's the, it's the city of Smyrna. Now today, the city of Laodicea, I've been there, is a plowed field. The city of Smyrna is actually called Izmir today and has over one million people and has a center of Christianity in there. The one said at the Laodicea says the beginning, you say you are rich and in need of nothing, but I tell you, you are poor, pitiful, wretched. To the other city in Smyrna, he says, I know how poor you are, but you are really rich. It doesn't tell us why the two are different, but if you do a study of the time of the, year, of the day, every one of those cities had a temple to the Caesar, the Roman Caesar who claimed to be God. And once a year, you had to go pick up some incense, throw it on the altar in that temple and declare Caesar God. If you did, everyone would do business with you, things would be prosperous for you, you'd be part of the society. It seems like the church in Smyrna wouldn't compromise and therefore, financially couldn't make it. In fact, persecution came on them because they wouldn't play along. The church in Laodicea, it seems, submitted to compromise, thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. He's not God anyway, and not all kinds of things. And therefore, and look at the difference result, how God saw them. You will be, only be free if you see with me you are rich. So here's my last statement. If you come to him, even though he's grieving you, you will see he really loves you. You will see he really loves 